Welcome back everyone to the next episode of the Introduction to ST3 Podcasts. Today I'm joined by Michael Stewart, one of my consultant colleagues at Preston, and we are going to talk about conflict resolution. So, Michael, should we start with talking about what conflict is, or what we mean by conflict? Okay, in essence it comes down to a scenario where two or more people want different things and uh, at least to that point they've not been able to find a resolution or a course of action they can agree on. Yes, I always like to think of it as somebody who's got an unmet need and so when we're looking at conflict resolution part of that is to identify what their unmet need is so that you can try to come up to a solution that is satisfying to all sides. I also think it's right that none of us particularly like conflict however it's really important to not simply look the other way and avoid conflict especially as you step up to that st3 level people will be looking up to you for leadership and will be expecting you to take control of some of these situations and you need to be able to do that even though it might make you feel somewhat uncomfortable because the rest of the team are reliant on you Absolutely. I think the, the the worst possible scenario is the unresolved conflict where the issues and the problems are still sitting there uh, and no one's stepped up to, to deal with it. Uh, and yes, as people move on to a more senior role within the department, um, things escalate. The, the easy conflicts, the ones that are easy to sort out, get dealt with on the fly and people manage them. And uh, the ones that they can't sort out get escalated up to the middle grades and ultimately to the consultants as well. Yes. So where does conflict happen? Well, we see conflict really when there's an interaction between two or more people. It can come up at any stage. So we see it within teams. We can see it between staff groups. Uh, we see it between different teams. And unfortunately, we see it with the patients and family members as well, uh, remembering the people coming into hospital. It's a stressful time for them. Some things which are very routine for us are very out of the ordinary for, for patients. Uh, and conflict's more likely when emotions are running high. So for patients, family members, friends, and certainly scope for conflict between, well, between themselves and between them and the clinical team as well. Yes, and also it happens both in clinical and non-clinical scenarios. So it's not just thinking about a patient who might have an unmet need or be unhappy about the treatment that they've received. There are lots of other aspects of our work that can cause conflict to arrive that isn't just about the treatment that we're giving somebody. Absolutely. We're all sort of busy, working hard, and in addition to the direct clinical work, there's any number of uh, other activities that that surround that. Yes, one of the ones that I think has occurred quite a lot of late is noise levels in the emergency department as well. So as we've got used to having either a fewer patients coming through the door or because the size of the department in many places has increased dramatically, it feels as though there are fewer patients in particular areas. You'll end up with staff who have essentially got downtime whilst they're waiting for a next patient to come into their area to be looked after. And noise levels tend to rise when people have a little bit of downtime and they're just socialising on the shop floor. And yet if you are a patient sitting in a cubicle not too far away from that and you can just hear people very loudly talking, joking around, listening to music, making videos for TikTok, then there can be a little bit of frustration and angst caused by that. And it's not necessarily that the staff are doing anything wrong because they are waiting for their next patient to arrive. They haven't got anything to do. But to that patient who is stressed and worried and concerned because they've come in with a medical problem and they're waiting either for treatment or for admission to a ward somewhere else, 
that can cause conflict and be quite distressing for them. Yeah, I think that um, segues quite neatly into to a common issue with um, conflict. Often when you get into it, there's not actually a fundamental disagreement on what needs to happen, what should be happening. It's often perception or there's a side issue that hasn't been explicitly realised or made clear. And if you can get to the bottom of what the concern is, a lot of conflict goes away without there actually being a need for disagreement. And a lot of the strategies around it are getting to the bottom of what the actual issue is, which can often be resolved fairly easily. As you said, that sort of idea of, of staff are being noisy and it's distracting for the patients. It's not that it's wrong, it's actually an important part of the mental well-being and coping with the stress of the job and to make use of that time. But maybe it's just a case that you need to have one person who stays in the clinical area to, to monitor the patient to wait for something to happen, and you encourage others to go to a rest area or break room where that can happen without the distraction for the patients everyone gets actually what they're looking for out of it the staff have their downtime. the patients aren't distracted aren't given that false impression of what's going on and there's not necessarily any actual conflict left that leads us quite nicely on to thinking about how we go about resolving conflict so the first step has to really be trying to understand why the conflict has occurred What other things would you suggest our ST3s do when faced with conflict? So some of the underlying principles are actually very similar to both the practice of clinical medicine and as people come into doing the exercises for the management portfolio, the initial approach there. So one of the first steps is the information gathering. So look at all the sources that are available to you and try and find out what the issue is. That will often involve speaking to all the parties that are involved. But if there's some primary information underlying it as well, having that to hand. Uh, so if there's a difficulty with a referral to another speciality, you'll want to speak to the doctor or the clinician who's trying to make the referral. At some point you will be speaking to the other team as well. But it's also useful to get the notes, have the observation chart, look at the results, potentially speak to the patient uh, and make sure you're clear in your own mind what the uh, information is to start with. The main aim with it, at least initially, is, uh, as we mentioned before, is to find out if there genuinely needs to be conflict. Uh, is there a misunderstanding or is the, the actual underlying problem something that can be sorted out and addressed? I think that brings up a point that we talked about during the complaints podcast as well, which is the importance of communication. And it's not just that good communication stops complaints from happening, but good communication can also stop conflict from arising and solve conflict quite frequently because often it is a misunderstanding or miscommunication that can cause conflict and as long as you approach it in a non-judgmental manner try to gather all the information that you can and then work out that something has just simply been miscommunicated and realign that communication it can be as simple as that to sort out. Absolutely and uh, alongside that a little bit of empathy goes a long way if someone's already angry or frustrated, that acknowledgement of how they're feeling uh, can sometimes break the logjam a little bit and just start the the actual communication, the, the more meaningful conversation. Okay, so that's the more simple side of conflict resolution really, from a miscommunication aspect or fairly simple things that are easy to manage just with going in and speaking to a relative or a patient or another member of the emergency department team or a speciality. What about the more complex and more emotionally driven types of conflict that we see? Yes, we're looking at the scenarios where we've ruled out simple miscommunication and there actually is a genuine conflict. The the aims of, of the two parties cannot simultaneously be met in full. Uh, and what we're then looking for is finding 
a way forward that will be at least acceptable to everyone, even if even if not ideal. Uh, in some cases, there are third options, alternatives which haven't been considered, which, while they might not be the favoured option for everyone, are at least acceptable. I think the most challenging situations are where there is a genuine sort of zero-sum game, and that any gain for one of the people involved means a loss for the other one in some way. Uh, and those can be some of the, the really challenging ones to find a, an acceptable way out of it. It's still helpful that the communication, the exploration, and trying to find out what the absolute key issues are for the different people involved. Uh, and it may be that um, giving away something on one aspect of it means the other person will accept another part of, of what you're trying to get done. So in some cases, uh, it may be we can negotiate that a patient who we really feel should be admitted to hospital but is very much against it we might be able to make some arrangement they stay for an extra couple of hours for a longer period of observation or they will come back to an emergency clinic the next day uh, and they will accept that if we accept their wishes to not sort of stay in or to be admitted you end up with a scenario where it's not ideal for either person they don't really want to come back or stay for that longer period of time we're still uncomfortable with them leaving but you might find a middle ground that both parties will will consider acceptable if not ideal Yes, I think it's an important part of negotiating skills that there frequently has to be compromise on both sides and you need to be willing to accept that you might have to move on your stance from what would be the ideal result in your head to somewhere closer to what the other party wants and actually the aim is for you both to come away feeling as though you've got a little bit of what you want so it's that win-win situation which is entirely reliant on compromise rather than one person feeling like they've got their entire own way and the other person not or both of you coming away and feeling as though neither of you have got anywhere near what you actually wanted out of it so compromise is a big part of conflict resolution absolutely Um, and it's one of the kind of strategies that ultimately can, as you say, have everyone walking away feeling relatively happy and satisfied with what's happened. Uh, There's other kind of broad strategies you can think of with it. Um, Sometimes the right answer is actually to do what the other person wants. Uh, It should be the default position, but occasionally actually when you discuss it through, you realise that the point that's being argued is not such a big deal for you, and it's really important for whatever reason, be it rational or not, to the other person, and sometimes going along with it is a valid option, a valid answer. And sometimes actually that can happen when you're wrong. You might go into a negotiation with somebody thinking that yours is the correct way forward, but once you've discussed with them what their wishes or expectations are or what alternate treatments or plans are available, that there is something that is better that you've just not thought of. And there's a lot to be said for admitting when you're wrong rather than keep pushing something just because you don't want to face the fact that you might have been wrong in the first place. Entirely, and I think that builds up a certain amount of credit as well. Uh, if if you let the patient choose their preferred option instead of forcing it, they're probably more likely to come back to the hospital the next time when they, they need care. Um, if it's someone you see, or even healthcare staff see on a semi-regular basis, if they know that usually you go along with their preferences if it's that one time you're really really arguing strongly for a different option it may help them to realize that you wouldn't be doing that unless you really really believed it was the right thing for them and similarly for interactions with with other staff if 
if you've shown previously that you will go along with their preference um, and that's reasonable, it may just make them sort of stop and think a little bit on the occasions that you're arguing really strongly for your point of view. You've shown that you're reasonable, that you're willing to discuss, you're willing to, to consider other options. And if you're really pushing on something, then it might be a good hint for them to reconsider their stance on that occasion. There's the short-term conflict to look at, but there's also the long-term effect of how you resolve conflicts that you need to look at. So you don't want to come across as somebody who is a walkover, whose specialties can say anything to, or staff in the department can, because that in, in short would turn into bullying in the long term. People think that they can walk all over you, they have no incentive not to. And you need to know when to push and when not to push. And actually it has a lot more impact if you're somebody who normally comes up with compromises and is quite genial about things, if you then stand very firm about one issue, then people know that you're taking a firm ground because you really, really believe in what you feel is the right way of action at, at that point. Yeah, we're kind of getting almost into um, the territory of, the, of moral authority. If you, over time, you show that you're reasonable and willing to discuss and to, to look for third ways and to go along with other people, uh, you do build up that sort of credit that you're someone who, who will listen and will um, uh, be fair to other people. As you say, that one time you do need to stand your ground, it does show that, uh, that it's something important to listen to. So I think we've covered most things. There are just a couple of other things that I wanted us to touch on. The first one being that as an ST3, you might not always be the right person to solve conflicts. Some of the issues are better off uh, passed up the chain. Yes, so it's not avoiding dealing with the conflict. You can go in and do some of that information gathering, but if you find that it's not something that is easy to resolve with communication misalignments or something like that, and you feel like you're not succeeding or you feel as though there's actually a serious underlying matter that needs addressing in a different way, then those ones we would expect you to ask for help from your more senior colleagues, whether that is a senior registrar if a consultant is not immediately available, or whether that's holding some of that behind to deal with later. So you might be able to sort out an immediate part of the conflict at that stage but there might be something that needs sorting out at a later date or looking into more deeply that you would then feed back to the consultant cohort. Yes yeah, so you might find uh, for example a situation where a trust policy or even a lack of a policy um, means that an unforeseen situations arisen that, that's driven the conflict. You can hopefully find a solution to the immediate problem but you're not going to rewrite um, a policy that's taken six months, ten people and sort of 34 meetings isn't going to be redrafted at four in the morning. So that underlying issue may need to be passed on to someone else to take back and to, to view a later stage. In addition to that, while we'd like to, to live in a world where the only thing that mattered was uh, the underlying facts and the quality of, of uh, an argument or a position, the reality is that the name badge does make a difference sometimes and someone who can walk into a situation or a meeting and describe themselves as a consultant will carry more weight than someone who is a registrar or a trainee. Um, it's probably not entirely right, especially if they're making exactly the same point, but we need to recognise it. it is the way that's recognised. Um, and sometimes getting a consultant to come in to speak to a patient or family member uh, or the registrar from another team will make a problem go away. That, has not been able to resolve another level. 
uh, and indeed that's not just an issue between grades of people but there's uh, sort of other differences that can uh, that can impact on that I believe. Yes which leads us quite nicely on to a bias that I wanted to bring up which is sexism when we're talking about conflict resolution and particularly females being assertive. I think not only can females be perceived sometimes as being aggressive when they are trying to deal with conflict because they're being assertive but sometimes actually as a female you have to be more assertive than your male counterparts because people don't take the authority from you and that's probably something I have more experience of rather than because I'm generally quite quiet and generally quite meek and mild whilst on the shop floor then people haven't accused me at any point of being aggressive but I have found that I have had to push harder than some of my male counterparts in order to reach a conflict resolution or in order to reach a compromise with somebody and actually it has quite a large effect on the person who's doing that because you don't like conflict and the more assertive that you've got to be whilst you're trying to deal with conflict the more uncomfortable it can make you feel and actually I think we shouldn't take for granted that it feels the same for everybody but if I have to be more assertive than you do when we're sorting out a conflict in the department then actually I might need a little bit of support after that as well. Yeah you, you're recognising that there's differences between individuals so as, as we said no one likes conflict but some people I think find it easier to cope with emotionally than others but we also need to consider kind of that, that average picture so if a group on average have to push that a little bit harder to, to get through something then on the whole they're going to find it a bit more stressful and after an interaction that would for some people um, kind of just skirt underneath that threshold for making them genuinely uncomfortable they'll have a moment or two of deep breath and carry on with the day and five minutes later we've forgotten about it if someone else had just had to push that a little bit more it might just tip over their their personal threshold into the area where actually it takes that five minutes just to get over the initial stress and they're still thinking about it half an hour 45 minutes an hour later um, exactly the same situation and there's the individual variation but it's more likely to hit that threshold for causing a sustained stress reaction uh, for some people than others. I think being aware that some, for some groups of people it is going to be more challenging as a baseline and being additionally aware of, of the potential needs can be useful. So if you see a female colleague who's been involved in some conflict resolution, whether it's they've come um, back out from the curtain after going in to see a patient or you've actually witnessed it in the middle of the shop floor, it would do well just to pause for a moment and have a little think. Did they seem to push further than you would expect you would have needed to have got the result that they have? And if that's the case, then actually they might need a little bit of support or a little bit of a time out at that point. And it's because it's been harder for them than it should have been for no greater reason than somebody else's either conscious or subconscious bias and so we might need to help people on an individual basis or we might need to support people on an individual basis. It's really difficult to say it with a broad brush that 
all females who are involved in conflict resolution will need five minutes out afterwards to go and have a cup of tea because that's almost as sexist as the underlying cause that might have made them have to be more assertive in the first place. So it's still something you have to do on an individual basis, but it's something that we should just all be aware of because being aware of it is really the first step in being able to do something about it. Yeah, that, that little bit of empathy, you recognise that not everyone's experience will be the same as yours. I'm just taking that moment to think, will this have affected them differently to how it would have affected me? Yeah, I think that's it. Okay, so Michael, anything else that you think we should cover today? We've talked about a lot of the considerations, the different strategies and the, the approaches that can be used. Uh, one of the things that I try and keep in the back of my mind is a, a framework or a, an order of preference for, for using them. And a lot of that's bearing in mind that in general it's much easier to escalate and go from a, a more collegiate to a more forceful approach than it is to go back the other way. So if you started going in with all guns blazing, it's then very difficult to go back and try and find a, a gentle negotiated solution. Whereas if you've gone with the kind of communication approach first of all, and that's failed, you still have the option of, of escalating later on. Yes, it's very difficult to back down from a position of strength without looking like a muppet as well. So if you build up, not only does it make the negotiation easier because you've not got heightened emotions of both parties to start with, but it also will save face if you actually find out that something was miscommunicated or done wrong in the first place. Okay, so, Michael, anything else? No, I think that's probably quite enough of me talking for, for any one podcast. Okay, well, thank you very much for giving up your time to do this, Michael. Always a pleasure. And stay safe, everyone, and goodbye.